Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thanks so much for the questions and comments that you've been sending in. Please keep them coming. Also subscribe to the podcast and remind all of your friends to do the same thing. And of course, support the companies that help this podcast stay alive. Harborside, Homegrown, Liberty Clothing, and there's this new company that I've recently really become enamored with, uh, and I'm wearing one of their bandanas. This is a 100% hemp bandana, and it's like, I just wonder what would happen if all of us all around the world made a commitment to just have, like in the next month or two, one little item in our wardrobe that was made of hemp. Can we all do that? Uh, the bandana is a great place to start, maybe. So our tribe's struggle to end cannabis prohibition is now well over a half century old. A great deal of progress has been made over these years with even more yet to come. Since the beginning, it's largely been an information war. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, it was almost impossible to find accurate science and history about cannabis. Most of the old books had been purged from libraries and bookstores, and very few new books were being published. There were only three TV networks in the whole country and no internet. It was much, much easier for the government to control the flow of information than it is today. As a young activist, I had to sneak into university libraries, paw through moldering old card catalogs, roam through miles of stacks to locate ancient and obscure manuscripts. And then sometimes the relevant pages had been cut right out of them. Research has always been an important part of cannabis activism because we know that we win any fact and evidence-based argument. Governments and the punishment industry know it too. That's why they do everything they can to cloak and hide their nefarious agenda. That's why they've funded thousands of bogus pseudoscience quote-unquote studies designed to show that cannabis causes harm. That is why they have spent billions of dollars on propaganda programs like DARE uh, and Just Say No. That's why they've seen to it that only 13% of U.S. medical schools give their students any instruction in the therapeutic properties of cannabis. Agencies like the Drug Enforcement Administration and the National Institute of Drug Abuse desperately use these and other deceptive devices to maintain their crumbling veneer of credibility because they know they cannot survive an open debate. Tom Adams is one of our most effective soldiers in this information war. He is an analyst who has spent his career supporting industries that have over the years radically expanded consumer access to information. He started with home video, 
moved on to digital media technologies and the internet, and for the past several years has been the principal analyst at BDS Analytics, an early leader, one of the very earliest leaders in business intelligence for the cannabis market. He carries an incredible wealth of knowledge about the cannabis industry, information that will be of value to entrepreneurs and investors, but also to activists and just lovers of cannabis. When you hear statistics like the quarter of a million jobs the industry has produced in the United States, or the hundreds of millions of dollars of tax revenue collected in legal states, Tom is one of the people you can thank for that information. Tom recently launched a new venture of his own, Adams Cannabis Research, which will be focusing on the global cannabis market. Our discussion today, of course, then will range uh, all over the world. By the end of the show, I promise you're going to learn something about cannabis that you've never heard before. I can make that promise because that happens to me every time I sit down with Tom. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Great to be on Radio Free Cannabis. Well, it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, let's just start, Tom, with uh, telling the audience what a, what a market analyst is. What do you do and, and why is it important? Well, I tell my friends who it's hard to explain to uh, that basically I pretend to be able to predict the future. Um, and actually, don't just pretend, I actually do predict the future, keeping in mind that I'm never going to be right 100%, of course. Um, all you can do is be uh, directionally correct about something like how big will legal spending around the world be in 2025. But just being directionally correct, I have found, is really the key that the people in the industry need. Um, you know, companies can't do their planning without uh, forecasts that are at least that directionally correct. And actually, really, the histories too. Where has the industry been? You know, where is it today and where is it going? What are the likely fast growth subsectors? Um, where's the common wisdom wrong a super important one especially in the early days of an industry like this when the common wisdom is so very often wrong so companies use the forecasts and analysis to plan their futures investors use it to allocate capital activists use the numbers to argue their points and regulators hopefully use them to structure regulatory regimes that'll do more good than harm to society at least that's our hope so what are some of the specific tools that you use, Tom? Well, everything from, um, uh, well, Excel is frankly the key tool. Um, you can use fancier ones, but frankly, laying it all out in spreadsheets is what really makes the trends pop out at you. Um, and really comprehensive Excel models where you, in a market like this, start with the number of patients or adult users and uh, gather whatever information you can through consumer polling uh, about what they're spending on cannabis and what kinds of products they're buying. You could then break down the spending into product types and estimate, uh, look at the price trends around those to figure out how many units of the each product type are being sold. You can then look at the cannabinoid content of those units and model it all the way down to the demand for flour, trim, and oil. So that's what I've really been focused on in the a couple months since uh, leaving BDSA is to take the what had been just a spending model and take it all the way down to the ground level, literally. Um, the you know the amount of plants being grown and, and needed to supply the market around the world. So um, 
it's been great to get a, a chance to do that over the last couple of months. And uh, I think we finally have a pretty good view of, of how the, the business works at all the levels from grower to manufacturer to distributor to retailer to the consumer. Well, um, we're going to explore your conclusions uh, here. You uh, had the opportunity to be involved really in the very early just uh, stages of the analysis of the legal cannabis market here in the United States, got to know that uh, intimately, and now have been taking those talents that you used and using them to take a look at the global cannabis market. So. Um, if you could just you know, walk us through that global market, what, what does it look like? Uh, how big is it? What do you see happening there that's important for us to know about? Well, many things. Uh, talk about the common wisdom uh, being wrong, of course. Uh, we saw the, the wreckage of that and some of the uh, results that the, uh, the Canadians have uh, suffered through in the last couple of, uh, in the last 12 months or so. Um, and um, so, uh, what I really try and strive for in these forecasts is reasonableness, right? Um, that anybody can kind of pick a number. Um, and when you're talking about cannabis, you may end up being right. It's wildly popular with consumers, of course. But um, the challenge is to, to figure out what are the reasonable assumptions to make about, about growth going forward. So I see, in fact, the BDSAs uh, on the website, they've just updated the worldwide legal spending forecast that I helped develop there. Um, and uh, that work was done by the team of really the smartest analysts from my media and technology background that I could convince to take a flyer on this cannabis thing. Um, and the key ones are still there working on this. So, um, so the, um, uh, the, finding, the key findings probably are that surprisingly to probably a lot of people, the international market is just much, much smaller than people think, but it's growing very quickly. Um, it's uh, the, the big worldwide picture is changing pretty radically. Five years ago in 2015, it was about a $4.6 billion worldwide market. And but 97% of that was in the US, the bulk of that, frankly, in California. And uh, Canada was a small little 2% of it with just a medical only market. And the international markets were just 1% of the market at that point. And that's counting pharmaceuticals. There really was no uh, cannabis market, so to speak. It was a cannabinoid market, if you will. Um, and very tiny. So BDSA expects this year that uh, there'll be about 20 billion spent uh, worldwide, about 83% of that now US, 4% Canada, and actually 13% international. So international has come a long way in the last five years as a couple of big countries, Germany, but really just a host of countries. There's now 40 plus countries worldwide that have at least pharmaceuticals and more and more uh, real cannabis uh, markets. So for 2025, uh, BDSA is suggesting that the $47 billion market at that point will be down to 72% US, 14% Canada, and that's really where the growth is. And that's a key issue because of course, adult use changes everything. Uh, international will still be 14%. So the market's growing stupendously in the 20, mid 20s compound annual growth rate and international growth with that. But because of all the limitations of being medical only markets, it really won't expand its percentage of the market uh, very much by, by 2025, which is kind of crazy. So at that point, you'll have Canada at 6.5 billion uh, and that's 40 million Canadians spending as much as 7.5 billion other people around the world are spending on legal cannabis, critical point, legal cannabis. 
Um, and 350 million Americans actually will be spending five times as much as that 6.5 billion that's being spent in, on the one hand, Canada, on the other hand, the entire rest of the world. So it's really uh, important to keep that kind of context in mind that as far as revenue growth and, and business activity and all of that, it's, it's largely about the US with Canada coming on strong and the international markets really just getting started at this point. Um, but of course, the growth rates are always stupendous overseas because we're talking about a very tiny, tiny uh, base of business at this point. Um, so those ratios, the key thing that's occurred to me in doing all this work is that this, of course, has little to do with the relative popularity of cannabis around the world and everything to do with the pace of legalization, which is just glacial overseas. So a key, you know, a key humility to maintain as an analyst is that we'll never know the size of the illicit cannabis market at this point. Nobody's reporting it. Uh, they're in fact trying to hide it very carefully. Um, so uh, we'll never know the size, but my best guess at this point um, is that about $200 billion is being spent worldwide. And that $200 billion that's being spent worldwide um, right now is, is really only catering to a small slice of, of what the potential, full potential of cannabis is. Or even what it is today, when you think about how much of, it, uh, of cannabis consumption does not involve transactions at all, um, you know, because it's a, it's a barter economy or it's just people growing their own, of course, which is happening, you know, for in parts of the world where you wouldn't dare transact cannabis but it's being consumed. So um, yeah, the potential goes way beyond that and, and we can get into that. Um, but um, in any case, with just that 200 billion being spent around the world so far is the key thing that points to how important these international markets are gonna be to the overall cannabis uh, business long-term. I can't think of another product category in which North America represents more than 85% of the spending currently. That's just crazy. After 40 years of globalization and, you know, income equalization and progress around the world with middle classes forming in countries that didn't have them before. Um, there really isn't a product category I can think of where that's true. The U.S. still leads in the development of many product categories. Look at uh, smartphones, for example, or video games or home video or pay TV or whatever. It typically gets the ball rolling. But in terms of spending, it's quickly eclipsed by the sheer number of active consumers everywhere else in the world. So in most categories, North America is well under half of spending at this point. And uh, I just noticed that the uh, uh, box office, the theatrical box office for last year, only a quarter of the 43 billion spent on going to the movies last year was spent in North America. So that's the upside uh, for the international markets. Uh, once we can get, uh, you know, really kind of the next five years of halting progress towards medical being available in most countries, uh, at which point I think governments will start getting relaxed about the harms issue. Uh, they'll be getting very used to the tax revenue that they were foregoing by allowing it to remain an illicit market that they couldn't tax. And we'll really see the explosion around the world in that next five-year period after 20, 2025. And that's why it's so important for companies to to get started now and be be in place and ready to go when the when the fuse gets lit on what will be a rocket. So this paints a really really exciting picture from my activist point of view as well as my entrepreneurial point of view. Five years ago, there wasn't a global cannabis market; it didn't exist. Today, it can be measured in the billions of dollars. But what we're seeing is that 
internationally, we are just in the earliest, earliest stages of reform. In the United States, we, in the course of <clears throat> 20 years or so, since the passage of the first significant cannabis reform legislation, we've seen the um, progress from just a few very limited medical cannabis laws to basically wide open uh, cannabis economies that are becoming really important parts of the, of the mainstream economy. So it says to me that the same process will happen uh, around the world. Uh, like you said, Tom, when we introduce medical cannabis, even if it's introduced in a very limited kind of way, over time, people who never would have used cannabis before start consuming it. And once they do that, they usually have transformational medical experiences. And then they give that news, that good news to their friends, to their doctors, to their families. And frequently, these are people also who never would have had anything to do with cannabis. And so over a course of five or 10 or 15 years, you see this very, very significant reduction in the amount of stigma and a new political opening to move from just medical cannabis into a fully free and legal cannabis market. So you saw this uh, happen in, in Colorado. You want to tell us a little bit about what it looked like there? Sure. Um, what I, uh, when you, as you were ticking off the people they tell, I was going to uh, add husbands. Um, you know, I think women are critical to this and have proven to be so in Colorado and every place else that I've seen consumer studies done. They tend to have uh, been uh, slightly less uh, in the consumer category uh, before legalization came along. They then, uh, you know, they probably tried it in their college days or, uh, or uh, you know, before starting families or whatever. Um, and, uh, and of course, what we're hearing anecdotally and seeing in the data is uh, how they're embracing, uh, especially the new forms of cannabis consumption, the topicals, the edibles, the chocolates, the, the things that make sense to them as something you would consume. Uh, and start getting those wellness benefits that that uh, they cite in the studies as as what's the value to them. Uh, and so, for example, in uh, BDSA studies, we've seen the um, uh, the consuming percentage of the population in Colorado go from I forget the exact numbers, but but mid twenty uh, percent to low forty percent of the population of the adult population in the state. Uh, since uh, just since 2017, so not even we, we don't even know what it was in 2014 when adult use kicked off, but it was less than 25 percent certainly. So we've seen something like a doubling of the of the population that consumes cannabis uh, when you get some years under your belt of of uh, despite some of the claims you see from the the forces against legalization, um, you know, no serious increases in. Um, uh, you know, uh, traffic fatalities, um, you know, to the extent it reduces alcohol consumption, of course, you get a reduction in all sorts of, of, of health problems. Um, you know, it's a, it's a generally a positive and, and that becomes obvious uh, to people over time. And the longer it's been legal, the more that's obvious to everybody and the more relaxed they can get about further legalization. So, so we're 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 seeing it in Colorado. We've seen it in Colorado for many years now. We're in year six or seven here of, of adult legalization. Uh, we're seeing it in California in year three of adult legalization. We're going to see it again in Massachusetts and Illinois and and states that were later to the party. 
Um, and, and we're starting to see it uh, internationally in countries like Germany, which is now in year three of its uh, medical experiment. And again, seeing none of the, the downsides people were worried about and all of the upsides in terms of people's health and wellness. So, so I think it's, uh, this is the process. Uh, we're, we're inevitably going to see it. I mean, it's clear after 8,000 years or whatever number you want to pick of human consumption of cannabis that, uh, that the harms are not what people have uh, claimed they are for the past 80 years. It's hard to remember that prohibition is only 80 years old but it is. And prior to that, of course, it was in patent medicines and, and kind of everywhere in many societies and even, you know, pretty well established in the U.S. and elsewhere. So we're headed back to that and, and more because now there's, of course, an organized industry behind it that will make, do it right. It will not be, you know, snake oil on the back of a cart pulling into the town square to see what they can offload. It'll be a, a legitimate retailer selling something that has legitimate uses. So it's exciting to, to kind of, as I said, you can't predict the future, uh, but some things are pretty clear from studying the past, and that's one of them, that this process was very likely to play out around the world at this point. This phenomenon may be surprising to prohibitionists, but it's certainly not surprising at all to those of us who love cannabis and know the plant. I mean, surprise, 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 knock me over with a feather. When you make cannabis legal, when you reduce the stigma, when you make it more readily available to people, more people try it. And when they try it, they like it and they incorporate it into their lives. And then good things happen in the world in general, right? Um, these are all things that we know, but your work in being able to quantify them gives us the kind of data, the kind of hard evidence that we need to march into the halls of Congress, to go into legislatures, to confront the skeptics. You know, it's very easy for us who love cannabis to convince ourselves of our own truths. But that's not who we need to convince. We have a whole world out there of cannabis skeptics that we need to convince. And in order to convince them, we need hard, good, solid evidence. Um, and so it's just, I think the work that you've been doing is, is so important, not just to, to business, but to the cannabis community in general, Tom. Um, what countries do you think are going to go next? Right now, we have a global cannabis economy that's dominated uh, mostly by medical cannabis and by CBD. Do you think there's going to be other countries, well, which other countries do you think are going to come online next with really more open, full cannabis economies? Yeah, that's the key distinction. There's actually revenue being generated by cannabinoids in almost every major country, uh, you know, the top 40 economies in the world at this point in any case. Um, but the key thing is, is when did they start? When did they move beyond pharmaceuticals? And uh, of course, many of those pharmaceuticals are, are, uh, are synthetic and not much of interest to people because they're, they're pretty horrible drugs. Um, but, um, the, um, so that, that's the key is, is the gradual, it's not the creation of, of medical cannabis. It's the expansion of medical cannabis to truly cannabis, um, particularly flower products and, uh, the, the derivatives therefrom. So, um, it's, um, you know, what we're seeing is that real growth comes with real cannabis. So, um, a classic example is France. Uh, France was due, has always long had the pharmaceuticals. Nobody wants them. Um, they're uh, allowed for um, uh, spasticity and uh, with Sativex and 
doctors often prescribe it for pain relief too, because of course it does work for that. Um, but it's, you know, it's pure THC and without any of the uh, other ingredients that we know make cannabis effective in many ways. So, um, so France is probably next. They were due to start a pilot program with 2000 um, uh, patients uh, this year. It got postponed until January because of COVID. Uh, but it looks like uh, that will be a well-run, very tightly controlled by the government and carefully studied pilot program that if uh, history is any judge will prove there's efficacy and no harm. And we'll have one of the largest economies in Europe now join the, the largest economy in Europe, Germany, as a full-blown uh, medical uh, uh, program with, with real cannabis in, in pharmacies. So, that's a two-year pilot, so it's not going to move quickly. That pilot will be all that happens for the next two years. But after that, we're expecting France to move pretty quickly because, again, it's obviously a, a heavy cannabis-consuming culture and um, um, and just waiting to move into real stores with real products. So, so that's a big one. Um, another one showing some huge progress in the last couple of years has been the UK. Um, I guess the third, the second, actually, that's the second biggest economy in Europe, I think. And... Um, uh, you know, just kind of a phenomenal thing happened last year where the people rose up and just demanded of their representatives that they get the hell out of the way of these kids that were suffering without their cannabis. And um, to me, that kind of says everything about the, the chances for legalization everywhere. Um, if, if the Brits are going to take their politicians by the scruff of the neck and kick them around until they do what they're told, um, you know, that can happen in a lot of countries. Uh, unfortunately, not every country, but a lot of countries. So um, there's been a lot of progress, therefore, with uh, clinics popping up around the country to service the needs uh, of patients for cannabis outside the, the, um, the uh, state-run uh, system, which is moving slowly to provide cannabis. Um, but it's proving effect an effective way to get out there with doctors working with patients and prescribing cannabis where it's appropriate. So it's uh, kind of a whole new model in the UK um, and looks like a, a very positive one for a lot of countries that are going to want to leave this in the hands of doctors uh, for the time being. Um, but to get around the, the nationalized health systems in many cases is going to be a positive. Um, uh, on the other hand, of course, the nationalized health systems is going to be a positive in countries that have it too because they're covering the cost of it. So people tend to use more of something uh, when they're they have the cost covered for them. So um, so it works both ways. But but there's many different models evolving now, and, and countries are kind of free to take their pick with a lot of experience um, uh, to go by in a year or two. Right now they have just Germany to to kind of look at as a model. So that's interesting developments in the UK. Um, and then. Uh, Things are moving along in a lot of other countries. Uh, a lot of Latin America has had very limited uh, cannabis access where you can order finished products from uh, countries that have legalized cannabis, but there's no pipeline set up within the country to provide uh, treatments to people. And so Brazil and Argentina and Peru and others in South America are, are slowly getting past that point just this year, really. Um, and starting to uh, put in place the, the, the moves to import cannabis, uh, raw cannabis into the country, make the products there, um, and adopt in many cases the, uh, the formulating uh, pharmacist approach that Europe has really had much more than the U.S. has always had for all drugs, um, but it's proving to be very perfect for cannabis in that you're talking about a, a doctor being able to give specific instructions about what he thinks the patient would benefit most from and the pharmacist formulating it right there on site from raw ingredients, um, and uh, and really thereby being able to tailor the the uh, the the 
medicine to the, to the patient in a way that is challenging, in a, in a, especially in a pharmaceutical industry where there's so many rules and regulations around everything. So, so that's a positive general development uh, on the medical front in a couple of the countries that are, are likely to move and be big just because they're such big countries. Uh, when I think about the information that you just shared, Tom, for me, this is really a challenge to cannabis activists all over the world. Uh, come on, tribe. The picture that Tom is painting is a picture that's going to take years and decades to accomplish our goal of getting cannabis legally and safely into the hands of everybody on this planet who needs it. Um, yes, it will work. Yes, we know that when we introduce medical cannabis to countries like France, that over time, people have more experience with the plant and more vistas of reform are opened up. But that takes a long time. In the United States, it's taken almost 25 years. And people are dying and suffering. People are going to prison for every single day of every single one of those years. We know now that, it, that, that we have the data. It has been shown that legalizing cannabis only brings positive benefits to society, not a small little incremental medical dispensation, but full-blown real legalization. Um, and that's what we need to move for. We know that it's possible now. And my plea to the cannabis tribe is, could you prove Tom wrong? Uh, could you get out there and re-energize uh, to recommit to full legalization, to do what the people in the UK did to go to your politicians, to pick them up by the scruffs of their necks, to drag them down to the legislature and make them do their jobs. So come on team, let's, let's get this one done and let's get it done in something less than three decades, okay? Steve, if I could jump in there, the interesting country on that front right now is Mexico. Um, Mexico uh, has had, uh, 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 the, the legislature did move to legalize medical, and it's gone very, very slowly. And um, in a unique thing that I'm not sure is in anybody else's constitution around the world, the Supreme Court can actually order Congress to make laws. And so it's very complicated. It takes five different rulings in five different cases, apparently, but it happened finally that a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court ordered the government of Mexico to legalize adult use, um, saying that it was unconstitutional to, to bribe deprive people of their cannabis. Um, and, you know, that's the good news is a, a new method, uh, you know, legal method, legalization method unheard of developed in Mexico. The bad news is what's happened since, of course, that the Mexican legislature has dragged its feet and, talk, you know, had more hearings than action. And just this year has missed several deadlines for getting it done, according to the Supreme Court. And of course, as a court, it has no real enforcement ability to force Congress to really do it. Um, so in talking to folks, uh, down there just recently, it's just, um, you know, kind of a, a moment of, of, of almost, uh, despair that this could never get done, but it is in the law that it has to happen. And therefore I think will happen. Um, and with more involvement and, and more, a bigger percentage of the population really pushing it and, and twisting arms with legislatures, it could, it, that's what it's going to take. Uh, and not just in Mexico, but everywhere around the world. And then I think another critical country to look at is so tiny, it's almost, you know, hesitate to bring it up, but Luxembourg. Luxembourg is just right in the heart of Europe. It's just exactly, you know, it's right there between Germany and France and it's similar populations, the richest country in the world, uh, one of them by 
uh, GDP per capita, uh, and it's going legal adult. And I think that's going to be so critical because if it happens right there in the heart of Europe that you can move from a very limited medical regime into a full-blown adult use uh, legalization situation and no harm comes to anybody because of it, uh, that's going to change a lot of minds in Europe. Luxembourg is about to become a very popular place uh, in Europe. Um, Tom, uh, you know, one of the, the things that we've seen as the industries, oh, wait a minute, Tom, uh, I want to just take a moment to recognize the cannabis activists in Mexico. Uh, I think that you're absolutely right. I'm completely 100% certain that cannabis is going to be legalized in Mexico. And it's because of the ferocity and determination of the Mexican cannabis activist community. Some of the most determined, creative, and unstoppable activists that I've met in my half century of cannabis activism are my Mexican sisters and brothers. So a big salute, uh, a big uh, abrazo to uh, all of our friends down in Mexico. I know that you're, you're going to get this done. Um, Tom, one of the troubling things that we've seen, we've seen it here in California, certainly, and I've seen it in Colombia and other places that I've traveled around the world, is that as cannabis is legalized, the legal companies um, that are backed by big investors that have a sophisticated ability to raise capital, to get licenses, to engage with the government, are claiming the lion's share of the legal economy. And the traditional people who are producing cannabis uh, underground, sometimes for many, many generations, their families have depended on it for their livelihoods, are now being squeezed out of the industry. You go to the Emerald Triangle in Northern California, and there's families who have had to call their kids home from college. There's families who have had to sell their properties, farms that have been in the family for three generations. There are boarded up storefronts in, in some of what used to be really prosperous small towns. Um, and I see the same thing in Colombia, where the government has actually passed a regulation that forbids anybody who used to grow in a conflict zone during the Civil War from participating in the legal cannabis industry. And of course, most of the cannabis uh, during that period of time was grown in conflict zones by uh, subsistence farmers, by campesinos, by people uh, who didn't have very much of an alternative, and now that's being taken from them. Um, where do you, do you see this pattern being most dominant? And are there any countries that are taking steps to, to reverse it, to try and build a more inclusive industry? Yeah, it's, um, it's tough to look at this from a California perspective and keep any perspective, of course, because California is certainly the poster child for this. Um, you know, the EIR that the state produced on the, uh, uh, for the legal program estimated that there's about 13 and a half million uh, pounds of cannabis uh, grown in California, that the legal medical market of 2017 only needed about 600,000 of those, that about a million nine of it was consumed through illicit channels in California, leaving 11 million of it going outside of California. And 
you know, as far as Mexico City. And I was stunned to hear when I got into the business that California cannabis is popular in Mexico City. That's a, It's popular in Bombay, man. <laughs> globalization uh, has reached into every every sector. There's no doubt about it. So, um, but um, in any case, so that, that really sets California up to be perhaps the, the hardest suffering of the traditional cannabis markets went with, with the arrival of legalization, coupled with the fact that it was such an attractive market for outside investors. Uh, and this is a classic case, of course, of the common wisdom you know, being wrong and, and why you need analysts to have the ability to, as one of my Hollywood guys said, Tom, you have the advantage, you can go close your door and think for a minute. <laughs> um, and um, so if you thought about it, you might've seen this coming in California. Um, and, and we did, we tried to be cautious in our projections for California, but even we didn't get right the fact that it would actually shrink in spending between 2017 and 18 legally um, because the regulatory and tax load was just so heinous that um, the, the illicit cannabis became super attractive to everybody who knew where to go get it. So, so it's been a real challenge in California, and it's one that's going to be replicated everywhere because every country in the world grows cannabis at this point, except the, maybe the, the most, no, most uh, northern uh, climes um, and um, or southern, I guess. Um, and, um, and so we're going to see it happen over and over again. And really been very little attention paid to it by anybody. Um, and that's one of the real threats of letting this develop for a long time as a medical only program, as opposed to just cutting to the chase and making cannabis legal, where the market could sort of, you know, the, the current players in the market could participate and, you know, take their chances, but at least have a shot of, of maintaining a decent share of the market, as happened, frankly, with alcohol prohibition ending, right? A lot of bootleggers uh, ended up being the the major players in, in the business. So the uh, that's hard to see happening if we take years or God forbid decades to get through the medical only era and into adult use legalization. But it is starting to be uh, to show up in a couple of countries. Jamaica, um, I heard you talk about it and you probably know more than I do about what's going on in Jamaica, but um, just the idea of setting up a separate set of rules for the Rastafarians to take care of their own their own uh through uh barter and or uh you know legalized activity cannabis activity um it's just a great thing to see and you know admittedly jamaica perhaps has the most out front and ingrained into the society cannabis culture in the world so um but where else would you see it happen and 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 kind of have the test case set up for other countries to follow so so i think it's very heartening to see what the what the jamaicans are doing it's also pretty heartening to, to talk to some of the activists in Mexico and seeing at least what they're pushing down there, which is an effort to bring in this massive uh, infrastructure, essentially, um, of, of uh, cannabis growing uh, campesinos around the country into the legitimate trade as it goes legal. So we'll see if that gets adopted or whether the high, higher ups in the government decide that, no, we'd rather do business with, uh, you know, the equivalent of American oil companies, or, um, you know, that didn't work out really well for Latin America uh, over the decades. So perhaps they'll see the light when it comes to cannabis and, and really try and make it more of a, of a homegrown uh, phenomenon and, and keep the traditional participants in the business. So um, we haven't seen a lot of effort go that direction yet, though. So it's definitely something to be uh, everybody to be watching for. Well, I can tell you that the members of this tribe 
the audience of this podcast uh, do understand the need to protect our traditional, our indigenous, our legacy growers from all over the world. Part of that just goes to fairness. It just goes to distribution of the, of, of the riches, right? Who is going to end up benefiting from this industry? The people who carried the plant through the long, dark years of prohibition, who had the helicopters landing on their property, who fought the battles? Or is it going to go to corporate masters, to an investor class that didn't bear any of the burden of that struggle? So part of this is about a division of the wealth that is going to be created. But there's another aspect to this, and I think of it as a struggle for the soul of the cannabis industry. If we have a long protracted period of time where the only cannabis is medical cannabis, where it has to be heavily, heavily, heavily regulated at all times, where change is, is, is incremental and where the scene becomes dominated by big corporations, then we also are going to be squeezing out the people who came to this plant, not because they want to make money off of it, because they understand it, because they love it, because they believe that it came into our hands to help us change ourselves, to heal ourselves, to heal the nations, to heal the planet. And we, the people who love this plant, are the people who really understand it and, and know it best and are most capable of introducing it, of explaining, of teaching the rest of the world that's beginning to discover it now, what the most important parts of cannabis are, to familiarize themselves with the culture of tolerance and inclusivity and peace and love and sustainability that has sprung up around this plant. Are those the kind of people that are going to teach the world about cannabis? Or are we going to be taught by marketing firms that are hired by huge corporations that are so big, that have so many stakeholders, that they're actually really forbidden from taking any kind of clear activist uh, uh, action or anything out of altruistic intent? So again, a challenge to the cannabis tribe uh, around the world. We cannot allow our sisters and brothers who have been carrying this plant through prohibition all of these years to be squeezed out. We cannot allow the promise of a new industry that will spread the wealth more widely, that will actually be sustainable and fair. We can't allow that to be taken uh, by the standard corporate world. It's a super important mission. And I know you're all out there fighting for it now. Just a, a little reminder about how important it is. Tom, before we leave, I want to get a little peek behind uh, all of this data um, and, and analysis and, and talk about Tom Adams, the person. Um, you um, grew up in California during a really interesting and pivotal time uh, when, uh, and I, I went, I grew up basically the same time on the East Coast and saw much the same thing. You know, in my earliest days with cannabis, it was all imported. First cannabis that I saw was imported from Mexico, then Jamaica, then Colombia, then Thailand. And it wasn't until there were several years of, of imported cannabis consumption 
that we started seeing the creation of a domestic cultivation industry. And that industry was born in California where you were growing up. So what did that, that period of time look like from your point of view? It must've been a wonderful time to be, to be a cannabis consumer. <laughs> yeah, I guess I had the pretty typical experience for a Californian. Uh, maybe I was a little more, uh, you know, uh, conservatively raised in Catholic schools in San Diego and uh, in L.A. in the uh, 60s and 70s. So, um, yeah, my first encounter with cannabis was really at a, a dorm party night one at UC Santa Cruz. Um, one of the Marin kids uh, invited everybody up to his room for for uh, to encounter with uh, I had never heard of before a bong and uh, his was made out of one of those canisters of Tootsie Rolls where he used to be able to buy a tube of Tootsie Rolls and he had converted it into a bong <laughs> I you like wherever you are um, but um, probably the most interesting thing for me about all of this was getting to Santa Cruz uh, in the late 70s there and um, encountering uh, Rob Clark uh, who you mentioned and I know is a friend of yours um, Robert C. Clark, uh, author of Marijuana Botany way back then. That was actually his senior thesis. You had to write a thesis to graduate from Santa Cruz in those days, even with a BA. And he talked more, and you could design your own major. So he talked one of the bio professors into backing his study of marijuana botany and put out that very seminal book, of course, in the in the late 70s, early 80s. So um, and of course, uh, he kind of introduced all of us to uh the, the joys of, uh, of, of uh, homegrown, as it was called in those days. Sensamia, uh, as a investment banker at a recent RQ conference, said to me, "What's Sensamia?" And as you can imagine, I felt my age at that point. You know, you don't remember there being seed and seeds and cannabis, huh? um, but uh, but we did, and of course, you know, encountering you know eight-inch you know beautiful colas of seedless uh, green fragrant cannabis was just a an amazing experience for all of us. Um, and uh, especially with how bad that important stuff had gotten by that point, if you, uh, I'm sure you recall the, what we used to call the uh, uh, the uh, seeds and stem, the, the bird's nest you know, baggie of seeds and stems from Mexico that uh, uh, was not an attractive product, let's put it that way. Um, so anyway, uh, very much uh, through Rob kind of got introduced to um, to what cannabis could be and um, had some wonderful, you know, experiences with him uh, figuring out how, uh, you know, at one point not being very good businessmen at that point and much smarter now, we thought, you know, the thousand plants that we were going to grow in the Santa Cruz Hills would be, you know, pretty much what the state needed, you know. Um, and uh, uh, being the collector he was, of course, he had a phenomenal collection of seeds from around the world, all those imports, you know, even the black Afghani hash yielded a seed or two that, yielded a little four foot, you know, Afghani uh, Hindu Kush plant. And so that was a veritable garden of Eden to, to walk through a, a, a patch that Rob put together. And uh, um, so we definitely, yeah, you're right. We got to see the interesting evolution of cannabis. I, I loved your story about discovering Santa Marta gold. Uh, I heard you talk about it at one point. Um, you know, we must have been getting the the West Coast variety of Colombian because it was there was nothing beautiful about it. It was it was crushed and powdery and and not very attractive uh, uh and uh, uh and that's why you know of course i've loved rob's book his hashish book where he has in the back an appendix of interesting hashish that arrived in the california market in the 70s and 80s 
and he's got them all cataloged by you know what, what the stamp on the outside of the burlap bag was and you know the various characteristics of the different hash so um it's um you know it's something to look forward to in the future of, of worldwide cannabis market it occurs to me is is the ability to ship cannabis products around the world and and see what's happened to them in the meantime and more importantly um, try and revive some of the land race strains and and deliver them to people around the world and get some variety back into uh, you know a product category that's, that's suffered a, a, a sort of a, a, a sameness in the 20, 30 years since then as uh, people focused on you know we got to get it in the ground and we got to get it out before we get busted and we want it to weigh as much as we possibly can and and you know we we've ended up with you know kind of a hybridization into sameness that. Um, you know, I think can be we can recover from as an industry and and seeing what happened that has happened in many other industries beer the most classic example um you know the consumer is going to love it and um and we can get back there when when true legalization comes around the world so it's an exciting prospect i'm so looking forward to that you know you're right the few benefits of being on the east coast relative to california in those days is that we were closer to Colombia, So we got it fresh and we got the pick and we <laughs> smoked all the good stuff before it got to California, man. <laughs> uh, partly, partly. I certainly, it was, you know, uh, the, the Santa Marta gold that you, that you reference uh, was the very first cannabis that I made a significant amount of money on. It really got my career off to a great start. So, um, so you, you, after school, uh, you eventually get into this career where you're engaging with a, a lot of corporate folks, pretty high powered corporate work. Um, your cannabis star was fixed at an early age, but then you're, you know, navigating through this corporate world. What was it like being a cannabis consumer in that world in those days? Well, keep in mind, of course, this was Hollywood, Silicon Valley, and Wall Street, um, three corners of the economy that are pretty accepting of drug use. Um, and in fact, maybe too accepting, given all the cocaine abuse uh, that was rampant in those three sectors of the economy in the, in the 80s and 90s. So, um, uh, but you're right, you know, there was still very much a, a stigma. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was still a very much us versus them world, if you recall. Um, I remember making fun of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No program by noting that given her own proclivities, she must have meant Just Say No to non-prescription drugs. And we thought that was pretty cute. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, it was Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street again, where people are, are more, uh, are, you know, both accepting in the sense and therefore more generously hearted, but also pretty cynical. Um, and, uh, and therefore, um, you know, it, it was just kind of not talked about as it is in, even in, you know, uh, Alabama and other states where it's, where it's not as open as it is in those industries. Um, but, um, but just sort of, uh, you know, kept under, under the, under wraps is, is what you had to do. Um, and, um, so it's a, you know, a real pleasure to get into the cannabis industry where, um, you know, it's just a very different culture entirely. Um, I think you maybe said it best in the early RQ conference I went to where you looked around the room and saw the growing percentage. I always call it the tie dye versus tie ratio. And, uh, the tie-dye, uh, it was the ratio was dropping at that point that you made that speech and noted that, hey, everybody, corporate America is coming. 
and it's going to change the cannabis industry. Let's just hope cannabis can change corporate America as much. And uh, uh, I just thought that was a, a hugely perceptive way to look at, at what could happen and the good outcome this could all have. Well, you know, I think that that process is happening. Um, you know, many of the people who come to the ARCU conferences, I can't tell you how many of them at some point in, in my relationship with them have cornered me, sort of taken me over to a private corner and said, you know, Steve, when I first started doing this cannabis thing, I was just in it for the money. That's all I cared about. And I'm like, oh, no, I would have never thought that, right? You know, uh, <laughs> and, and then they go, but you know, now that I've been working with it for a few years, I've invested in a few companies, I've spent time with patients who are using cannabis, and I've seen the incredible good that it brings to, to people's lives. I've seen how people have, have just had these amazing transformations for the better, in some cases their lives saved, and I'm a true believer now, man, I'm all in. And, um, and you know, I'd say at least half the time when I go to them to write a nice check for the last prisoner project, they do it. <laughs> well, you know, and since you have the the activist crowd and the new activist crowd that thought they were in it just for the money, we're now becoming activists uh, listening in. You know, it occurs to me that uh, there's there's a current issue around this that's absolutely you know central to. Uh, good outcomes here and that's mandatory testing in corporations and and governments and and around the world there's still this uh stigma attached to cannabis whereby if you're tested positive on your drug test you're uh fired and uh that has just got to end um you know it's it'll it'll end i think slowly but surely because Clearly, with legalization and more cannabis consumption, you're going to find out that, you know, alcohol use, of course, is a far greater threat to the health and safety of the world than uh, cannabis is. And we're, you know, we're tolerating that and we're not even testing for alcohol use. Um, I guess if you're blatantly drunk driving a forklift, you might get, you know, caught and canned. But, um, but you know, it's not systematic that, that you know, you're, you're, you're being tested for, for uh, other far more uh, troublesome uh, chemicals. So, you know, it shows up, for example, in the Canadian data where the highest medical card percentage in, in the country was in Alberta, where the oil field workers have mandatory testing. And so they were ecstatic to be able to finally go and get a medical card and in the legal regime that said it was okay to have cannabis if your doctor said it was, be able to go take the test, test positive and say, you know, that was uh, last night or last weekend and you know i'm not on the job stoned and and you know you've got no right to fire me so so it's uh you know it can happen in that very jury-rigged way through medical legalization but it can really only happen through adult use and full legalization and that's why it's important to move on quickly around the world ultimately we are going to have to have the real debate about cannabis not about cannabis prohibition and how harmful it is, not about is cannabis just a little harm that we can deal with and we can live with, but the real question, is cannabis a good plant or if you believe in such things, a bad plant? Is it something that we should welcome into our lives, into our families and into our societies? Or is it something that we should ban and something that we should push away? We know that every time that we have an evidence-based conversation on that question, uh, it comes back in favor of cannabis. Um, Tom, uh, I want to close here with um, 
having a doing a little double check, right? I talk a lot about the idea of a global cannabis culture, of a cannabis tribe, the idea that hundreds of millions of us all around the world who all have endocannabinoid systems have had the same set of experiences with this plant. And, and out of those experiences, we've developed a commonality, a shared value system. Uh, and and that, that, that that scope, right, there's, there's hundreds of millions of us around the world. Uh, collectively, we're larger than any nation or all but the largest nations on earth. And I, you know, I think about that. One of the purposes of this podcast is to introduce this community to each other. How have you seen that manifesting in your work? Um, uh, is there such a thing as 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 a, a global cannabis culture or consciousness? Well, I think so. I mean, clearly, there's um, communities both in the traditional market and now growing up in the in the legal market um, that are very much communities and have a shared ethos for that reason. Yeah, so. Um, it varies um, country by country, state by state. Um, uh, you know, I, um, uh, somebody in Colorado said to me at one point when I first got involved, uh, well, you've got to come out here and, and see what's going on in Colorado. You're from California. We don't have any of that hippie ethos out here. We're just you know, <laughs> a bunch of aggressive entrepreneurs looking at the next main chance, right? Um, and so, you know, of course that's wrong. You know, there's, there's something of the hippie ethos in, in, the, in the hills of Colorado as well. Um, so I, I think um, whether you call it that, the hippie ethos or cannabis culture, um, clearly, you know, it, it's happening. And, um, you know, and I think it, it all goes kind of back to uh, what the um, function of the endocannabinoid system in the human body is. Um, you know, it's just that basic that it is in charge of maintaining homeostasis and that you know, neither too hot nor too cold nor too fast nor too slow nor you know um, as we use as I think maybe the fabulous furry freak brother said back in the day uh, you know it mellows you out um, and um, uh, and um, you know and that's a kind of a disreputable word at this point um, but I think it's okay to use it with this crowd to suggest that there's a a certain mellowing effect of uh, consuming cannabis that uh, everybody who does uh, appreciates. And that's that's what creates that separate culture, uh, which, you know, uh, hopefully will uh, not be all that separate and be more integrated into the broader culture pretty quickly here. Yeah, that's, you know, that was that point that I made back at that ArcView conference is, are the corporations going to corporatize cannabis or is cannabis going to cannibalize the corporations. The jury is still out on that one, but uh, I think that uh, we all know that the best way to get to the conclusion is to get as much cannabis into the hands of as many people as we can. Tom, um, just in the last uh, minute or two here that we have together, what's on your horizon? What should we be looking from you next? And how can our audience stay in touch with you? Well, we're just getting started on uh, getting up a website, Adams Cannabis Research, uh, but you can go ahead and uh, give us your information if you want to hear about uh, what's coming up uh, from us next. Um, you know, the opportunity of doing this talk with you is convinced me I need to sit down and kind of write up some of this stuff I've been learning in the last couple of months about the international markets. So there'll be, a, uh, um, you know, some blog posting on that front uh, that'll make it worth uh, reading about. Um, and, um, you know, I'm uh, approaching a lot of the key companies in the business that I think are on the right track or could be on the right track and could use a, a smart strap planner to help them get on the right track. Um, having 
you know, for example, first help Blockbuster take over the world and then help Netflix take over from Blockbuster um, and help, you know, Disney and the other studios revolutionize the media business and the tech companies figure out personal, uh, personal handy telephones and what they were going to mean to everybody. Um, I think I've got uh, a lot to offer uh, some of the smart companies in the business. So I'll be uh, hopefully working with a lot of them. And then I'm talking to some of the other folks that are really uh, have done some pioneering work on really getting Wall Street involved in this business, which we need, you know, uh, as, as much as they are suit wearers, um, you know, we, we need their capital, we need their support to make this happen. Um, and so we're talking about various ways of bringing together all of the good investor interest data into a, into some easy way for people to access that. So again, I promise I won't spam you with, uh, you know, yet another new summary um, uh, every week. Uh, it'll just be, you know, smart stuff that occurred to me because of all the research we're doing. And again, you can hear about it by signing up at uh, Adam's Cannabis Research. Great. All right. Well, Tom, uh, thank you so much for being with us uh, here today. Um, uh, I come out of this conversation with you really appreciative of how far we've come since those early days when I was a young activist and could find literally almost no information about cannabis. It was hidden. It had been purged. It was unfindable. I mean, I went and when I found the books, I'm not lying, they would have whole chapters cut out of them, right? And now, today, we have really super talented professionals who have spent their whole lives looking at a variety of different industries and sectors who are devoting all of their time and all of their energy to understanding on a very detailed level, actually, the real life things that are happening. And this is so critical uh, moving forward that we have the ability not just as entrepreneurs and investors to make smart business decisions, but that activists all around this planet have the data that they need to show one simple truth. Legalizing cannabis is good for everybody, not just people who consume cannabis, but the benefits flow through to society on all different levels. So Tribe, I encourage you all to stay in touch with the work that Tom is doing, to look upon it as ammunition in the struggles that we will be fighting, struggles that we will be fighting to make sure that traditional cannabis producers have a place in this industry, struggles that we'll be fighting to make sure that whole plant medicine is accessible to people all around the world, struggles that we'll be fighting to make sure that we can actually move from the medicalization of cannabis to full freedom. This is how we win, with evidence and fact-based argument. It's easy to convince each other. It's more difficult to convince the world. Tom, thank you so much for giving us the data, the ammunition, the facts, the evidence that we need to go into the arena of debate and come out victorious. I'll see you next week. Thank you.